You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the show. Stuart Goldsmith here. I'm talking today to Jos Norris in the Monkey Barrel, live at the uh, the Edinburgh Festival 2019, which concluded yesterday. And uh, you can hear in my voice just how drained and strained it is. I'm holed up in Edinburgh Airport, uh, recording this in uh, in a little corner, the quietest corner I could find. Apologies if there's any sort of bing bong announcements in the background um what can we say about jos norris he's just such a pleasure to speak to a very very funny very imaginative uh very personable incredibly articulate and delightful young man so it gives me enormous pleasure to bring this conversation with him to your ears this was recorded live at monkey barrel which is fast becoming the coolest hippest is there any way to describe how cool something is without making yourself sound like you're 90 years old um all five of their venues this year are just brilliant and it, it kind of beggars belief that they've been that at least three of them have just been used as storage rooms for the last few years they've been there the whole time um, saw some sensational shows there and really enjoyed my run of primer there as well thanks to everyone that came to that I'll have a little um, a debrief of that after this episode uh, but for now uh, Jaws is after this was recorded in fact Jaws won the uh, the competition well it's kind of a, a, a prize a comedy prize uh, and it's decided by comedians only you have to have a show in the comedy section in order to vote on it. Uh, it's called the Comedian's Choice Award and uh, Jaws, I'm pleased to say, won Best Show. I believe the other winner was Laura Lex of this parish. Uh, so congratulations to both of them. We didn't know that at the time, but what we did know is that Jaws had just uh, a few hours earlier completed a performance of uh, Jaws Norris's Dead Long Live Mr. Fruit Salad. And we're going to talk about that in detail. I hope you can, uh, you can tell what we're talking about and how we're talking about it uh, having not seen the show if you haven't seen it um, but I, I think we'll lay it out and clarify it as we go this is Jos Norris Thanks, everybody. How's it Thank going? Thank you, Jos. I feel like we should shake hands in a sort yeah, of formal not? Yeah, that's news nice. reading yeah. pre-interview way. Like um, are you comfortable on that wobbly chair? Is yeah, no, right? I'm good now. Yeah, right. Sorry, I was, um, I was faffing. That's entirely fair. Thanks for the show. Thank I'm, you very much it, for it coming. It finished half an hour ago, so I feel very much like it's still yeah, in now me. How are you sort of, feeling? I've calmed down a bit, and I've drunk water, and I'm sort of mostly recovered, so that's fine. I'll probably sort of 
get to grips as I continue speaking. Will there be a sort of, I find about 20 minutes after I come off stage, there's like an adrenaline dump where yeah. I'm super yeah, and excited then you just, and then I just yeah, run Yeah, and then you out. just stop and then you're just okay. quiet for a bit and we'll, then you think. I think I've done that bit. I oh, think great. I'm now functioning again. Awesome. But it takes a little while. So for the benefit of people who haven't seen the show that almost everyone in this room yeah. has just participated in to yeah. some extent, um, so tell us what... Tell us all about Mr. Fruit Salad. So the show is about a... Is it easier if I do, if I do the chronologically why he exists or if I just describe the, the, the centre of the show for those Follow two your people. instinct. Follow your I, instinct. Basically, I... And for those so, two people and the listenership. And, yeah, and the, yeah. Oh, yeah, because I forget that this goes out. I was just enjoying it as a, as a live experience. <laughs> um, I, so the idea of the show is that I am absent and I have been replaced by... This this character that is on paper uh, rubbish, really, that just doesn't really function as a character, I don't think. And it's me in a fake beard and a hat and a pair of sunglasses uh, doing an irritating voice, and there's really nothing to it at all, I don't think. And it's his repeated kind of efforts to start a show or to get to the point where there is a show, and they're constantly put off by the fact that he can't really engage with people and can't uh, get out of his own head and can't actually form a connection with people. And then eventually when he reaches the centre of what he wants to say, he realises he has nothing to say and that's the end. <laughs> um, that's sort of what it is. And the the reason it exists and the reason it came about is I I basically, in 2017, I've, I finished The Fringe in 2017 and was just exhausted and had to stop and didn't want to come back uh, and sort of cancelled a lot of festival appearances and things. I was going to do Leicester um, because uh, there's always a sort of big weirdos weekend at the end of the Leicester Comedy Festival where all the comedians from the Weirdos Collective go up together. I didn't do that, and then I got a leaflet through the door, which was the Heroes brochure for the shows that were on at Leicester Comedy Festival that year, and there was a picture of me on it because they'd reused the previous year's graphic design, but I wasn't supposed to be there, and a part of me suddenly liked the idea of being there, but I wasn't supposed to be there, and existing in some way in disguise in the space. So I went there with this disguise on and then sat at the back of Alison Thea Scott's show, and I think I was just losing it a bit. Uh, and then somebody, Adam Larter, came over to me and said, Joz, and I said, yes, but shh, don't tell anybody, I'm not supposed to be here. And from that, I just spent an entire weekend pretending I was somebody else. And, oh, I was eating a bag of blackjacks and fruit salads at the time, and Adam said, are you going to come up with a name at least for this character? You could call him Old Black Jack. And I said, I'll call him Mr. Fruit Salad because that makes me laugh more. <laughs> uh, and then I got a text from John Kearns that said, I'm supposed to be co-hosting a gig with Pat Cahill at Leicester this weekend. He's pulled out because he forgot to tell me he wasn't in the country. Please, can you just tell me you're going to be there and you'll co-host it with me? And I texted back and said, I will be there, but I will be in disguise and I will be pretending that my name is Mr. Fruit Salad. And he sent a text back saying, why is, why is nothing ever easy? Uh, <laughs> So the next day we performed together and I performed in this disguise and I pretended I wasn't there and I wasn't in Leicester and I pretended to be this other thing. And something about that felt interesting enough to keep going back to. And I think it just annoyed people for a very long time as a character because I think a lot of people just saw me doing a really irritating character act and were like, is this what you're going to do for a year? And there was something about the premise, the idea of doing it that struck me as funny. Rather than the actual character itself, there was something about cutting your face off and trying to connect with an audience without being able to see them or without them being able to see you. That was the thing I kept coming back to, really. So that's what it's about. Sitting in 
Before I continue, a yeah. brief tangent. I love the show. Thank we you We all love the show, apart from those two old boys that left 10 mm. minutes from the end. That was but a shame. I was really enjoying watching the guy because he was just over the aisle from me, and I, I was thinking, God, the Fringe really is for everyone. <laughs> if I saw this older gentleman in my audience, part of my instinct would be like, me wandered in the wrong place. Yeah. And then I was thinking, throughout the show, he was enjoying it, he was laughing in the right places, and I was thinking, I have misjudged this guy. Comedy point. is for everyone, and then he left. <laughs> I, so I can never, I can't really see people's faces when I do the show unless they're in the very front row and then they're lit enough. So whenever people walk out, I, I assume it's out of hatred and then I, I let that do whatever it needs to do to me, whether it makes me sad or kind of defensive or whatever. And then I can never tell, like, it, a load of people walked out the other day and then left me a lot of money at the front of the house, at the box office and said they really loved it but they had to get a train. I feel like the guy today I think probably just hated it. I, no, I well, he, he's met, the other older guy there right. across the aisle from him stood up and left and he went, oh, in a kind of a we're oh, off. Oh, okay, right. oh, we'd better go because he's you, gone. you never yeah. know. You yeah, never you know. don't know. I watched the entire audience walk out of a gig a couple of weeks ago. I'd never seen that. One of yours? No, uh, I'd done the first half of a preview and then in the second half uh, there were six people left and a woman left and left her boyfriend alone. And then he left. And then three women left. And then the last guy left. And it was just me watching this guy's um, funny YouTube video. It was really sad. It was good as well. It was really good. I'd never seen that happen. The point I'm making... Yeah, yeah. ...is that the show is excellent. Thank you very I much. I laughed and I teared up twice. Oh, I'm sorry. And it was very beautiful Thank and you special. very much. And I thought it was excellent. You describing the genesis of Mr. Fruit Salad as you wearing a disguise and not just sort of being at a comedy festival dressed as someone else, but sitting in the back of another <laughs> performance show. Yeah. That sounds a bit like a breakdown. It, yeah. In hindsight, I, it was Alison Thea Scott's show, and she came up to me afterwards and said, I would have found that incredibly irritating from anybody other than you, but I hope, I hope, I hope you're okay. <laughs> And I, I had had a weird sort of time. There was this period of time where I, I, I felt exhausted with doing comedy and I needed to stop doing it for a while. And then I didn't really know what that meant. And I booked in a theatre show. I did a theatre show at the vaults, which I now look back at and dislike quite a lot. I really don't like what it was doing. And I think it was my attempt to try and deal with the fact that the one thing I loved doing and cared about doing for a very long time had suddenly stopped working and suddenly I was just burnt out and tired and sort of sick of myself. Uh, and I was trying to find ways back into that. And then that sort of fed into a lot of other things in my life and a lot of things just sort of stopped working. And there was something about being on stage and nobody knowing what was going on in my head because they couldn't see my eyes and they couldn't see what I was thinking and they couldn't see the fact that I wasn't actually enjoying being there. Something about that suddenly made it fun again and it suddenly made it playful and it made it sort of impish in a way that I knew I was struggling quite a lot to engage with it, but there was no way these people could know that, so I might as well trick my way back into enjoying it so that sort of became the process of the last year or so was trying to remember how to have fun with performing by solving those problems separately I think kind of letting the stage be a place that I could go to and hide from people in a weird way so that I could then focus a bit more on my real life and try and address what was going on in that and the the text of the show the kind of the substance of the show is very much a, a conversation between 
you and your character. Yeah. With featuring also Ben Tarja. Yeah, and, Ben's incredible uh, in it and, and has brought a And we'll get back to the it. bit with the doors, which yeah. I felt like giving that, that bit That's a standing favorite. ovation. What a bit. <laughs> um, but um, so it, it seems like it's a conversation between you as the performer and you as the character. And obviously yeah. you, you started off by saying that this... Um, that the character is sort of weak. It was thin. It was yeah. almost like the absence of a character. Yeah, yeah. By the time we see him in the show, he feels very rounded. And, yeah. And, well, maybe rounded is not. <laughs> I think it's sort of like I, I very consciously never actually made him into a character that had any substance to him in that, like, I don't really know where he's from. He's from Pontefract in my head, and I used to talk about that on stage, and then I realized it wasn't funny and didn't add anything to him. And I don't know what he does or what his history is. So I was very consciously not trying to build a character of, it's this great character comedy show about a guy who has this job and does these things. It was just the disguise and the way of doing things and the way of operating that he sort of represented. And then I think through that, it becomes a way of looking at why you've done that. So I think that's the conversation is I'm sort of present on stage trying to understand why I've needed to do this. And he because he's this shortcut to reminding me how to be playful and how to be stupid, I kind of imagine him as a cartoon character, basically. I think of him as this live-action cartoon character. And because he's so flat and so sort of uh, superficial and stupid, and he exists in this nonsense world, it means that I can have this very kind of... I think behind the show, I can have this conversation with what was going on that made me make the show, and I kind of have that conversation in my head every time when I do it. But trying to kind of let that be there without really talking about it, if that makes sense. Have you sort of... I feel a bit like you're outside of the ecosystem of clown, Mm. but you've happened upon clown. Yeah, I did a bit of clowning in 2013, and I, I, I did a Dr. Brown course, and I did all the sort of clowning gigs, and I got very into it for a while. And I think at that time, I'd become exhausted of stand-up and I'd got exhausted of the rhythm of stand-up and the kind of the, the logic that it always follows. I think because I wasn't good at it and I was trying to do it. I was trying to write stand-up material that sounded like stand-up material and none of it felt correct or honest or real. So then I went into clowning and I tried to do that for a while and then I realised there's as many bad clowns as bad stand-ups and it's not this trick that suddenly like... So I think for a while you kind of think of it as like if you have this authenticity with yourself then you unlock this amazing way of doing things that's much better than any way of writing jokes or whatever but that's not true either because you see as many people i think sort of using it a bit but maybe not quite getting to the root of what what it is they're good at so i kind of moved away from that as well and the thing i think i took from clowning was the idea of like all you're trying to figure out is what you're good at and what you love doing on stage there's none i think you spend a long time trying to be good at everything and having a go at all the different ways of being funny on stage and at writing jokes and at writing routines and at writing stories and then at clowning and then at characters and all that kind of thing. And eventually you keep going round and round in circles until you find a way of existing on stage that feels like it's right. And I think that took a very long time. And it's sort of... I feel like there are elements of clown in there, but it's very much not... I don't know the rules of clown or I don't really understand it. Uh, but it helped me, I think, get in touch with something a bit more honest about myself, maybe. It's interesting. You're talking in a very... Like, to look at you... I don't know how old are you. How old are you? I'm 30 now. Are you 30? Yeah, oh, old. You are Getting older old. than I expected. Yeah, I know. Oh, I played that boyish card for so long. <laughs> it served me well, and yeah. then no more. <laughs> um, the, uh, but you talk with, uh, with 
clearly a lot of experience at trying lots of different things. When did you start? Uh, tell me about your I origins in comedy. I started doing comedy in my first... I, I say it's 2011, but it's 2008, because I sort of played at uni for a while, and then I thought, I'll try and do this properly. But at uni, I, um, John Kearns and John Britton sort of got me into stand-up, because they ran a student comedy club at UEA. And I did some writing and was doing some acting and was in the sort of drama Is UEA in Norwich? Uh, yes, University gotcha. of East Anglia. Okay. Um, so I was kind of involved in the theatre world there and was writing a lot and was doing some acting. And then John Britton said, your scripts are quite funny, so come and try this and we'll just see if you're any good. And I think I, think I was rubbish, actually. For quite, I think we were all probably quite rubbish. Or certainly if you were to compare us to what, to what we do now. I think there was a big thing of just us doing impressions of things we'd seen other people do or being way too self-indulgent just because we had a daft idea. And who were, the, who were you doing impressions? Like, not literal impressions, but who were you kind of aping in your I desire to think, find yourself? I remember watching a lot of Stuart Lee at uni and thinking he was great. And I, have, I can't remember consciously whether I ever actually... what routine I would have done that might have been mimicking him. But I remember watching a lot of it, and I'm sure that informed a lot of what I was writing. Um... I don't know what John was influenced. I think actually John Kearns has just always been, I'm just going to do whatever I feel like doing. He did this thing at the time where he pretended to be a whale and it just involved putting his head sideways next to somebody else's head because whales can only see out the side of their eyes and then screeching at them. It was great. It was really great. Uh, really incredible. So I think he's someone who's actually always just been like, no, I'm going to do what I want to do. Um, then you did, as opposed to you, like you didn't feel as kind of creatively free I as think that? I, one of the things that people, there was a comedian called Tom Moran, who's now a writer. He writes for uh, TV shows and things. Uh, and he, when he was a stand-up, he found me, I think, a bit frustrating. He, we were really good friends and we worked together a lot and we did all these student gigs together to our friends at uni. Uh, and he would often say he found it confusing watching me because he didn't understand why any of what I was doing was funny. There was nothing on paper that was funny about what I was doing because none of the jokes were funny and none of the ideas, if you were to explain them, sounded funny. But there was something about me that always made them funny and he wasn't sure what that was. And nor was I at the time. I just kind of went on stage and tried to be silly and always trying to be silly maybe in a way that I'd seen other people do. But I think it was always... There was one where... Have you ever seen those bags that are one long zip and you zip mm. round and round up the bag until the bag is complete and then it's a no. little shoulder bag? Have you never seen that? Has seen those? We're intrigued. One, I had a five-minute bit that was just me demonstrating that and saying, <laughs> isn't, that, isn't that great? I think that's great. And then I'd undo it and then go, I think this is great. Uh, and <laughs> people weirdly liked it, but it was one of those things where, like, I didn't know what I was doing. I, just, I would just go on stage and try to share something, and sometimes I'd try and write something, or sometimes I'd just try and show them something or tell them a story, and I didn't really understand any of it. But I think those three years where we were at uni was really just us trying to work out whether it was something we wanted to do uh, and whether it was something we had the kind of the, the confidence that we could figure out a way of doing it. And... I think some of us went different ways. And uh, John Britton obviously now directs and writes and things and has done amazing things in that. And then Tom Moran went into writing. Uh, and I think it took a very long time where I figured out how to do it. But I did sort of have a sense from early on that there was a way of me just standing on stage and being funny and being myself and communicating something silly about myself that I would eventually get to the centre of even if that took a very long time. I sort of knew that would be there eventually. You had a sort of internal confidence. That, yeah. And what was that born of? Was it the fact that you'd done silly things with a zip and it had somehow worked? I think it just, it felt like 
I'd always had this sense since I was about seven or eight years old that I was going to end up writing and making things. That was, that was always what I wanted to do. And first it was I wanted to write books because I wanted to be Terry Pratchett, and that went for a long time. And then I wanted to be Pierce Brosnan, and I really wanted to be just in things. Uh, I, uh, so I had these ideas of, like, it's I want to be... classic Pratchett, yeah, Pratchett Brosnan, Brosnan. Lee. Yeah, that was my sort of trajectory, really. So I always had this sense that I wanted to end up involved in the making of stuff, and I didn't really know why. And I would try to write books or, or stories and things like that and never really, never really got to the center of that feeling. And then I think from as soon as I started trying to do stand-up, although I think I was doing it in a way that wasn't necessarily that good and that people found confusing and were like, yeah, it's funny, but I can't work out why it's funny, there was never any sense that, that it wasn't going to be the thing I was going to end up doing. I think everything else I'd tried, I was like, I can sort of tell somewhere that this isn't the right thing. And then as soon as it came to comedy, I sort of felt this is the, the means of expressing this thing that I've been trying to express this whole time that feels like the correct one. Um, and that sort of never went away, even as I sort of tried different things and gradually got better and better and more and more certain of how to do it. That sense of, like, I know this is the medium that I will figure out this feeling through was always there. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I have a sense of you as one of those comics who was kind of forged in ACMS. Yeah, you, I think it's fair? helped a lot. I think so. I think Weirdos was the, was the big one for me. And then Weirdos sort of led me to ACMS. And now ACMS is the sort of the, the regular playground. Tell, uh, me, tell me, let's just that. for the benefit of people who don't know what these things are, yeah. let's just talk a little bit about Weirdos and ACMS and the difference between them. So Weirdos Comedy was started by Adam Larter in 2010, I think, and initially was just a comedy night. I think it was a bunch of people who went, it's quite hard for us to do our stuff on the circuit because everyone thinks our stuff is rubbish. 
Uh, so we've got to create a space where people are going to be more receptive to it. And they were all people who were strange in their own way. There was, uh, Matthew Hyten would do very surreal stories, and it was all very kind of lyrical. And then Mark Stevenson would do this very, very deadpan stand-up that was sort of anti-stand-up and very kind of... You didn't know where it was going. And then Adam would build outrageous props, and do, Ali Bryce would do these very big, colourful characters. And it was all stuff that didn't really fit within the mainstream kind of conceptions of what comedy should be in lots of different ways. And I think the big thing with Weirdos was none of them cared about making a career of it. I think all of them believed in doing what they wanted to do rather than what was expected of them or what the kind of the, the following the popular trends of what comedy was. So they created a space and then gradually it became a sort of a collective, almost like a theatre troupe, but like a really bad one. It was like a bunch of children. <laughs> so, so we did in 2012 we put on a production of Hook that was a line for line uh, performance of the Steven Spielberg film Hook which ran at... The, the film is about two and a half hours, and we added stuff. So it was about, it was about three and a bit hours. John Kearns was Peter Pan. I was the shadow. Uh, uh, Darren Maskell was Smee. Carl Schultz was Captain Hook. It was uh, awful, absolutely awful. Um, and just mess everywhere. And very long. All the friends I had that came to see it and watched it went, this is way too long and we don't understand it. And then after that, we started, Adam started writing these big sort of anarchic, silly pantomimes every year and we'd do them at Christmas. So we sort of refined this idea of weirdos being this group of sort of playful children that put on these stupid nonsense shows that started as just us going, we don't care what anybody thinks of us, we're just going to do something stupid for the sake of doing something stupid. And then gradually it became a kind of an art night or a creative playground for just people to explore things that they couldn't explore at, at regular gigs or at, or at other shows? I think from uh, the outside, I at that time was a very mainstream comic right. and largely remain so. If you could be mainstream... Yeah, who knows? I'm <laughs> yeah. not going to finish that sentence. Um, but I, I felt from the outside, as someone who had got into comedy and had a couple of good years before I thought, oh, the thing I love that I've just managed to make work is imploding and there's too right. many acts and not enough gigs. Yeah. I wondered, my notion was that stuff like Weirdos was happening not just because you felt that you couldn't get uh, stage time elsewhere, but because there was a sense that it is increasingly impossible to make a living from this, yeah. so I may as well do precisely what I want, yeah. rather than being kind of harnessed to some idea yeah, of think so. doing the right thing in order to earn. Yeah, I think, I think we all just kind of realised at around the same time that the only way you can do it is to kind of completely indulge what you feel you need to do and give yourself the space to do that, or to try and fit into, into what you know will kind of lead you on a kind of a structured path. And I think... Adam really sort of spearheaded it. Well, Ad I think Adam's really interesting because he, he works anyway. Uh, he works in advertising. So I think he's always had this sense of, like, I can do whatever because it doesn't really matter. So Weirdos had this thing at the, at the top of it that went, this can be whatever we need it to be because I will allow it to be that and I, I don't really need to get anywhere with it. Uh, so within that, we kind of all had permission to just be stupid, really, and just explore whatever we wanted. And I think through that, we all formed a sense of what we were doing. And then there were other things around it at the time. So I think ACMS was going on at the same time, but I wasn't really involved with it at the time. And there were gradually these places being built for people to say, you're allowed to still use comedy as a space to just be stupid and just to try and to fail and to get things wrong. And I think... 
there are still sort of people within weirdos who also at the same time were working on actually kind of getting somewhere and really kind of honing their craft. So I think saying, talking about it too much as this terrible nonsense place where people just failed, I think is wrong because also alongside it, people were, were building careers. But I think it was an amazing space for people to go and just feel they had permission to be silly and I think it's odd within comedy that like, very often you feel like it is something you need to take very seriously and it's something you really need to plan and think about and get to the centre of. And I think Weirdos and ACMS really allowed us all to feel like we could still just listen to that sort of child bit of your brain. So tell me about the difference between ACMS. I, I know that the Weirdos was a collective whereas ACMS was a club, the yeah. Alternative Comedy Memorial Society. Yeah. With the, the intention of which seems to be to foster and celebrate failure with a view to creativity and taking huge risks. Yeah. So what sorts of things, for people who haven't seen it or may never go to one of those nights, what sorts of things were you doing and how did you fit into the sorts of things that were going on? So my... Uh, I think the, thing, the joke that eventually got me sort of... To, to become a kind of a regular part of ACMS and to go there more often to kind of indulge things was I did a joke in 2015 that went on for a month that was uh, it was I would I would turn up at every ACMS and then for every single I wasn't I, I was booked for about one of them across the whole month but I would turn up every day and then when they were about to announce the next act I would uh, go on stage and then go oh oh and then leave the stage uh, and then go sorry I thought I thought it was me and then I would do that for every single act across across the two hours until they, until they got to the last act, and then they were going, now the last act of the night, and then I would come on stage and go, oh, uh, it must be, and they'd go, it's not you, and then I'd go, oh, I've, I've misread the email, and then I went home. <laughs> um, and I did so that. you never actually performed I, other than that joke? I performed that, so I did that every single day for a month, uh, and then on the last day, they let me headline the last ACMS, and I did a thing about Bruce Springsteen singing I'm on Fire, but out of sync with the audio. Um, and... After that, they were. That was that was a fun month-long joke. You should come and you should come and. Be this here seems more to often. align with our yeah, values. I, I, mean, yeah. I, I don't know whether it was. I mean, it may well have just been a pity thing of like we sort of have to now. And I, I really didn't think of it as like if I keep turning up, then maybe they'll let me in. I just thought like this makes me laugh. This seems silly to turn up every day and go, oh, it must be me, and then leave. <laughs> um, so there was that, and I think ACMS is more sort of. I think there was a there was a slightly kind of DIY anarchic streak to weirdos of like we don't care what anybody thinks of us we're just going to build this thing and put on this stupid show and I guess ACMS was more sort of it was people who do comedy professionally and and have their regular stuff that they do and the idea I think with ACMS was more like this is a place to come and do the things that you wouldn't normally do at your club sets and that's kind of thing and that feels I think to me that feels like a big distinction the idea that at weirdos it's sort of we are just going to do whatever because that's what we do here under ACMS, it's more sort of, there's a rule system, and it's like, don't do your club set, do something silly and something inventive and just sort of a one-off that you might never do again. And there's the whole sort of permitted heckles thing. So it's kind of, it's, it's built as a system, I guess, or as an organisation, and then everything that happens within ACMS is sort of making fun of the idea of having a system and having rules. But it's more of an organised place, I think. Whereas Weirdos was just us painting things and building things and then sort of smashing them up afterwards. And so what was your first hour? My first hour was... Oh, it was awful. It was really bad. It was in 2013, and it was called Jos Norris Has Gone Missing. And it was actually, weirdly, this, a similar sort of premise to this, 
But also, I think this premise has been done loads of character comedy shows. And the idea was I'd gone missing and four characters were going to fill in for me and do the hour. Uh, and it was at the Blind Poet, which is a laughing horse venue, and was very nice, but continued to function as a pub while you were performing in it. So you'd be in the corner, and then people would come in and order drinks in your show, and you'd say, I'm doing a show, and they'd go, okay, I'm having a drink. And that was sort of the exchange. Uh, so it wasn't great. One of the characters was a, a bad superhero called Mr. Gumbo. Uh, one of them was a, a garden spider who'd been transformed into a little boy. And <laughs> yeah, that was actually quite good, though. Uh, he, he found a genie. It is, no, I'd found, that was it, I'd found a genie. Jos Norris had found a genie and wished for the garden spider in his garden to turn into a little boy. Rubbish, absolute rubbish. Uh, and then, so it was three characters uh, sort of messing around. And it was sort of, I think at the time I had established this idea of, I'd been to the Fringe and kind of done some tryout shows to see what I made of it. And I just had this idea that the Fringe is a place to go and play and create and make stuff. So I had no idea about the kind of trying to work your way up to doing a Fringe show and trying to use a Fringe show as a place to really launch yourself and kind of establish yourself as a comedian. I didn't really think of this place as a, as, a, as a space that existed on a career ladder or whatever, which means basically I just turned up with something that was a bit rubbish and had some fun moments in it, but I was sort of here just to have fun and, and play and create a bit. Uh, Dreadful, absolutely dreadful. No, it was, sort of, it was sort of, it was fine. It was all right. How do you, when you are operating within the world of infinite possibility, how do you select for kind of maximum impact or maximum potential when you can do literally anything? If your characters, those four characters, they yeah. sound like this sort of thing that could be literally anything. Yeah. I, mean, I know people will have different answers to this, but I'm interested in, in your one. How do you settle upon something given that everything is on the table a sort of a specific routine that i want that yeah or like a a boy that a garden spider that's been turned into a boy yeah as opposed to x that's been turned into n yeah i guess i think everything starts with just an images that sort of feel right for a certain thing i think every sort of routine i've ever come up with has been based on Something I'll I'll say something whether it's in conversation or just to myself walking around or something will leap into my head and that will make me laugh and therefore I decide that that has to be the thing it is. I think it always has to come back to the original thing that appeared in there and I have to explore that in sort of the right way. And I think for whatever reason, a garden spider that got transformed into a little boy by a genie leapt in there. And then there's never any question of it being anything else. It's sort of, well, that's what the idea is. If it was something else, then it would be a different idea, I think is how I think about it. So there was never any sense of whether it would be funnier if... It could have been funnier if he was almost anything else, actually. (laughs) Maybe. I don't know. I never even thought about it. I just sort of thought... I think it's always... Every show I've ever made has always started with one thing that I wanted to create on stage... And then everything else has sort of revolved around that and come back to it. So I think, like, one image or one shape that I wanted them to see. Uh, And it tends to be, I'll get that in my head, and then most of the rest of it just comes from conversations I have with myself while walking around. That's sort of all it is. And I never really... I never really write. I never actually sit down and work out what the funniest thing is for this character to say at this point or for this person to say or, or for them to do. It's just a case of whatever comes into my head is probably the right thing because that came into my head, if that makes sense. And then you go out and try it, and then you go, oh, no, that's bad, actually, so I won't do that. 
but I'll find another way of making that work because that's the thing that, that came in first. And the elements of your shows which are connected to the personal. Yeah. You know, because it's not just, just, you know, it's not simply absurdity. Yeah. They're always, in the shows of yours that I've seen, there always seems to be a core of a, an emotional experience or an emotion, some sort of opening or, or yeah. revealing of something that you're going through right now. Yeah, I think I, I, I read a... Have you ever read Breakfast of Champions? By yeah, Vonnegut. Vonnegut, yes. I read that in 2014, and there's a phrase near the beginning where he says something about... He says something like, I'm, I'm not happy with this book. I think it's the best book ever written. And he says at the beginning, I'm not very happy with this book. Um, it's got a lot of nonsense in it, and I think it's just me trying to clear out all the nonsense from my head. And I read that and just really fell in love with it and the, that, the way of looking at things. Uh, and I think every show I've ever done is an attempt to say, this is sort of how I feel at the moment. And I'm trying to sort of get across a sense of what that is without actually telling people about it. I feel like I don't really have the right to stand on stage. Or not the right, but it's, it's never something I've wanted to do, to stand on stage and say, this is exactly how I feel and what I think of my entire experience. I've never done a show that's like, this is my life story or whatever. But I try and find the images or the characters or the stories or the skits that for some reason articulate how I feel at that time. And then I always hope that that comes across in a way that makes the audience go, oh, I've felt a bit like that. Because I think what you want is you want to create a show that makes the audience feel like it's about them. Like you don't necessarily want to make a show that makes them go, oh, I really care about what happened to you now. You kind of want them to go, I'd sort of understand that because my life has had those things. So you want to say just enough to give them that. And I think that's why absurdity is a really nice tool because you don't understand why it's saying... Like, I don't understand why it's saying those certain things, but I feel like if it's communicating them for me, then hopefully they will come across in a way that other people can go, yeah, I actually understood what that meant because I felt it a bit. But you can't really put it into words. So with Mr. Fruits, with Jos Norris is Dead... Yeah. What's the, sorry, remind me jo, of the uh, title. Jos Norris is Dead, Long Live Mr. Fruit Long Salad. Long Live Mr. Fruit Salad. Um, it, it has the... It suggests to me that it's a breakup show. Yeah. Or it has elements of a breakup. There, there are certainly, in amongst the sort of lunacy and yeah. the supposedly thin character, there are moments which feel to me like that is unequivocally a moment from Jaws' actual life. Yeah. And a thing that he's going through regarding a breakup with a partner or a friend. There are about sort of five things, and they all concern different people, because it was basically... The whole show is me trying to make sense of a year where I... My... my, The pictures along the back, along the string, there's the, the six photos along the back, and they're all photos of people concerned with things that happened that I needed to process with this show. And one was... I stopped enjoying performing and I was tired and I needed to get away from it. And as a result, I, um, I stopped leaving my flat and I stopped seeing people. I started cancelling all my social things and I was too scared to see people. So my whole world became three people that I live with and the walls of that. And that then had a knock-on effect on a relationship that then didn't work out and uh, a grandparent died. That's, the grandparent is the only thing I talk about in the show because it's the only one that I think... I'm willing to just accept and understand and go, a grandparent died, and that's a thing that happens, and it's a thing you can process. And the others I, f- I didn't understand enough, so they're just there in the background. Um, 
So there was that, and then the work-in-progress version of the show last year was an attempt to kind of understand these things and heal them a bit and get better at being on stage and get better at being with people and at going out and at remembering how to exist in the world. Uh, and then on the day of the um, first performance of that work in progress, my, I fell out with my friend. My, uh, there's a friend who sort of informed a lot of my work over the years. And on the way to the performance of the first show yesterday, I got a very long email from her, which ended with, fuck off out of my life. And I performed that show, a version of that show that didn't have that ending in it. Uh, and then sort of spent the year since trying to rebuild that friendship, really, which is why now that feels like the center of the show to me. So the actual breakup element with uh, the sort of romantic breakup was involved in the process of things falling apart that this show was an attempt to rebuild from. And then they fell apart again with a different person. And it's then been a case of rebuilding that. So it's sort of two attempts to rebuild something that's, that broke, really, but different things, which is why I don't really talk about it, because each element concerns a different part of my life, and I, I don't want to suddenly draw all these different people into it as though they are the meaning of the show. I'd rather just explore how that felt and how it felt to try and get better from it and then let that communicate in a way that hopefully the audience can grasp onto in some way. Um, so that's sort of what it's about, really, is it's about trying to remember how to be with people after you've behaved in ways that mean you lose them. It's sort of about losing people, I think. And the, the, your absence throughout the show, and your, without yeah. wanting to give too much away about the show, but for the most part, you are absent in the show, and this cipher for Jos Norris, yeah. which we all know is clearly you, yeah. and you play with the idea of who it is. Um, it seems to me you're sort of, you're almost hiding in plain sight. Yeah. Does it feel like you're revealing more of yourself by hiding? I think so. I think this is actually, I think every comedy show you ever make is, is or for me, I think they're all actually exactly the same thing. I think they all make the same point and say the same thing in the same way and you just explore it with where your brain went this year and you go, this is me saying the same stuff again. Uh, and I think the show two years ago of me tying myself up with string was the same thing about I'm trying to find a way to be with this audience while also cutting myself off from them physically. And the show before that, I was a head in a box and I was trapped in a box. And I've, I've kind of gradually realized that everything I've done has always been about the idea of I think it's very hard to be with people and to show people what you think and what you believe and how you see things because everybody else is caught up in their own version of that. Everyone else is experiencing their version of the world. And by putting yourself on stage, you're trying to say, this is my version of the world, but you're never actually going to communicate that. So I think all my shows are sort of about how impossible it is to connect with people, even though all you're trying to do all the time is to do that and to show people what it's like to be you. But you also have to remember to listen to other people when they do that the other way around. So I think that difficulty is is the center of most of my shows if that difficulty is is the sort of a preoccupation of yours artistically yeah to what extent does that reflect a genuine difficulty you find in your social life do you have a normal social life apart I've, from in these sort of certain traumatic incident like i've you? got much better i've sort of been fine with it most of the time and then it got very bad last year and now i've sort of recovered from it again i'm, I'm terrible in busy places i don't like busy places and I've just had to gradually learn that that's the case and that it's okay to remove yourself from them. So when I think, you talk about being in a club, yeah, walking yeah, around yeah, in yeah, a yeah, circle. Yeah, yeah. That's all I've ever done. I just walk around and around. I went to a library once 
a load of us went clubbing and I uh, found a 24-hour library nearby and I went and sat in the library and I just waited and then I went and found them again at the end and then went home. And I don't know why I never thought it was okay to say, I don't want to do this and I just don't want to be here around people. So I always had to find a way of being there but not being there and then pretending I'd been there. Uh, And I think gradually I've had to learn and teach myself that it's okay to just take control of the things you like in your life and to say... This, this thing I'm good at, I'm good at being around people in this sort of way. This I can't do, so I'll avoid it. Oh, that was another thing. I had a, one of the things that was a real kind of turning point last year in terms of me suddenly realizing things were quite bad was the, the friend I was talking about, the friend I fell out with, uh, we were in a busy pub and we were talking. Have you ever had it where you know the person you're talking to is about to finish speaking and you have this horrible terror because you know it's your turn and you've, and you've got nothing and you don't know what to say? Do you get that a lot? I get it. I get it a lot. I was I hoping all the time. by looking at the audience at that moment, I was hoping to express without making completely explicit that certainly it crops up in these interviews yeah, a lot. I bet, I bet, I'm sure. <laughs> certainly I spend a lot the of these listening and yeah, 10% and going, of my brain I'm going, going the next hell. thing. And the one I always um, remember is Hannibal Buress many years right. ago on this uh, podcast would finish sentences by going, so that's that. And I go, for fuck, fuck, yeah. Oh, go, sure. Okay, right, now it's me. Now I have yeah. to do it. But certainly, uh, conversationally, yes, I have experienced that. Yeah. I wouldn't say it, it, I, it. I find it sort of, I, I get it very often. I get it very often with people I don't know very well, and I think that's quite normal. And then occasionally when I'm not doing too well, I get it with people that I know very well, and I have this horrible self-critical part that goes, it must be because you don't actually like them very much, or they don't like you very much, or you're not really friends, that you have this thing. Uh, and then I had it with my friend, with my best friend, and uh, suddenly I had to stop her and say, I have no idea what to say. I can't think of anything to say, and I've never had that with somebody I know well before. So I had to leave and I had to run off. So that's the, I think that's the state I get into when things are bad, is I have this fear that because I sometimes struggle in social situations, it must mean that I don't know anybody or don't get on with anybody. I think I read too much into my own anxieties and worry that they mean something in, in the outside world when they don't. They're sort of a private thing to navigate, I think. Um, but yeah, I think all the shows that where I tie myself up or I put myself in a box or I put on a beard or whatever are all ways of trying to understand that and to say, I know I struggle with these things and these ways of being with people, but I'm finding ways to, to try and connect anyway or to, to go beyond my own limitations with them or trick myself into being able to be with an audience. And does it work? Does it, has it helped over the years of making those shows? Because I know you also talk about, uh, you talk in the show about having therapy, yeah, which I yeah. assume is real. Yeah. yeah so to what extent has, therapy, has anything helped? And if it has, was it the therapy? Was it the shows? I think, I think over the last year, I think the show and the therapy... And just generally having people around who understand that, like, it's a process of kind of sometimes getting better and then sometimes getting worse again. I think that seemed to be the the most helpful way of thinking about things is this idea that, like, you can you can get hung up on the things that currently aren't working or you can try and remember that there's this thing that you like doing or this person that you like spending time with or this cafe that you like going to or these places that you like to go and see. Uh, and I think trying to remember that there will always be these lows where things are difficult, but you can choose to focus on the other things. That seemed to be that seemed to be the thing that I got out of 
all those various processes of doing these shows and of doing therapy and of trying to talk to people more and things, I think the, the take home from that was the more you focus on... Like, the, the, doing this show really reminded me that I love creating things and I love showing them to audiences and I love it when I'm able to have fun on stage. And remembering that, I think, then reconnects you to stuff and you go, well, if I just prioritise... If I just try and line up all the things that are good and that I sort of thrive on, that it means the next time I get sidetracked by something going wrong or making a mistake or, get, or messing things up, I can remember those things and I can get back to it. I think it's a case of continually kind of spiralling upwards and probably encountering the same things again and again, but getting better at knowing how to deal with them. Which are your most pleasurable bits of the show to perform? Because it's a series of games. Yeah. And you play the game so well. Oh, thank you. And you, like, from, the, from clambering over the seats, holding someone's hand, yeah. doing an impression of them, there are so many very deft opportunities to spin a game up out of something silly. Yeah. And you're really good, I think, at keeping the ball in the air. You, you find a game and you're like, oh, we're doing this presumably those things are more discovered than written. Yeah, those are all things. I write most of my stuff to music. Like most of the stuff, the games that I think of is me walking around, whether it's just going for a walk or walking to a gig or from a gig. I'll nearly always have music in and something will occur to me that is a funny thing to do to this musical track. Uh, and I love elevator music because I think it's the funniest thing. Oh so a God, lot of, the repeated... So the, the, the elevator music, the kind of going back to that became... The thing that, with each of them, I had this album of elevated music tracks and just would sort of listen to them and with each one tried to kind of figure out what mood I wanted to play with. And then often the games just come out of small things in conversation, like the uh, the flower and the wine and the back it goes thing came from just having lunch with Lucy Pierman and taking a flower out of a vase and offering it to her and then putting it back and then we both laughed and I thought, well, that's, that's, that's a joke. That has to be a joke because we laughed. Uh, so therefore, trying to do that again and again and work out how can you escalate that and where does it go next and then it became the wine and it became the kiss. I think that's my favourite one to do every time. Um, I think just because there's a real ridiculousness about that musical track and about how uh, sort of unpleasantly close you can try to be with an audience member and then trying to be gentle at the same time as being sleazy I think is a really silly thing to play with. And I'm just thinking as well I, I, I wanted to hear you singing more. The first two of the oh, tracks yeah. as you're trying yeah, for the benefit yeah. of people who've not seen it without wanting to bust it too wide open um, you announce, Mr. Fruit Salad announces he's going to sing his introductory song, his yeah. theme tune and then we go through a series of you trying to find the right piece of lounge music to sing it to You've got a fantastic singing voice. Oh, thank you very it's much. It's lovely to hear Mr. Fruit Salad readily shrieking. shrieking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, but it's, yeah. Horrid. But in a very mellifluous really way. Oh, it's not good. horrid at all. Um, it, it's really lovely to hear you kind of playing around with the idea of what might be a theme tune. Yeah. I, I, I've been trying to sing more this year. I, um, me, me and Ed sing my way in our show just because we enjoy singing. People don't enjoy it, but, um, but, we, but we, we sing it. Um, and just generally this year, I found that like singing on stage is a thing that I really enjoy and makes me feel very silly and daft. So it's a thing that I sort of try to work into the show a lot more. I feel like those first two where I'm properly singing are the ones that are always trickiest to perform because at that point the audience doesn't know what the joke is. And I think in their heads they go, are we just going to watch him sing for the next however long? Well, it ends up being like 40 minutes or something. <laughs> but... Um, so I think those first two are the point where people have to ease their way into what's going on. And then as the game changes with each one, I think then people start to accept they're like, okay, this is just going to be nonsense for most of the thing. 
And it used to be, that was a self-contained bit, the theme tune bit. It was a sort of a 10-minute section. Yeah, I, that's, I saw it when it was a section. Yeah, yeah. you saw that preview. The, um, and so initially that was just a game. I had all these elevator music tracks and I loved the idea of just going through them and constantly saying, no, this is wrong. And then with each one figuring out uh, what the right mood was and how to do something silly with that mood. And then I realized the show had lots of other bits that were set to music. So it had the stuff about my grandma's funeral that was set to um, the sort of ambient uh, ballroom jazz music. And it had the flossing to ambient music thing and all these other things. And they all sort of happened for no reason and were there. And then I realized it needed some kind of organizing structure of why we, why we kept coming back to these different songs and realized there was already this joke in there of going through 10 different songs and trying to figure out what they were. So extending that so it became the majority of the show actually then kind of solved the whole thing because the whole thing is about trying to get to a point of expressing something that can't be expressed and reaching a point that can't actually be reached. So they're constantly putting off the start of the show with all these different interruptions felt like the right thing to do, really. I got, um, I just reached the end of that fringe and all I could see of the fringe was uh, the ego. I'd sort of lost sight of everything else and I find the ego of this place exhausting and it's something you have to indulge in yourself because you've made a thing and you want to share it and you want people to see it and the only way to get people to see it is to talk about it all the time and to say, please come and see this thing I've made. Please come and see this thing I've made. And by the end of 2017, I'd done four years of it in a row, and I was just fed up of it. I was so fed up of talking about myself, and I was so fed up of other people talking about themselves, and I knew it wasn't their fault. It was them trying to sell their things that they've made. So I kind of knew you have to remove yourself from this because you're tired. And that, that seems logical and sensible. Yeah. You know, to remove yourself from an absolute fuckstorm of egos that's yeah. lasted four years. And then I came back last year anyway. It didn't really work. I came back and did a play. But I felt like that's a way of being here because there's so much stuff about the Fringe I love and it's an amazing place and all my favourite people are here and what it actually exists to be is this amazing creative space for people to share what they've made. So I wanted to be here, but I knew that I couldn't come up here with a show and say, hey, come and see my show again. I didn't have that. So then a friend had written a play and said, do you want to be in this play? And it seemed the perfect way to be here and be part of it and be involved, but to try and not carry it all on my, my, myself. Myself? My shoulders. I'll just say my shoulders. Started pointing at my shoulders and then thought, no, that's the wrong word, but I think it's the right word. So I'll go with that. Would you ever take <laughs> Mr. Fruit Salad to do a play? I think it would be awful. I think it would be really bad. Um, I don't know what I'd do next with him. Like, I, I, I'm very proud of this show, and I like what it does. And I think it's got me back to a point where now I really enjoy uh, making things and being on stage. I feel like there's not enough to him as a character for it to be a kind of a thing that comes back every year. Like, I don't if I think if I were to do, here's what Mr. Fritz Sal is up to this year. He's in the people will be like, do you really think it was as good as, as all that, that character? I, so I think I, as, a, as a tool and as a way of thinking about things and as a way of exploring stuff for me, I think he's been very useful and has helped me create a good show. But I don't think there's enough to him to be like, and now he's in space or whatever. <laughs> Actually, um, that sounds good. I, I think there's a lot to him. I feel Dragon. like I can see... Oh, I maybe don't know, we've nearly all here seen him. I want to see more Mr. Fruit Salad. Okay. I think something about... I don't know necessarily what's he up to now is yeah. the right way to approach it, but, as you know, but I, I really like spending time with him. I like his voice. Maybe I'll do more then. 
my gut feeling is like surely everyone's everyone's bored, but maybe they're not. Maybe what, people are enjoying it. But why would you him. think that? I don't know. I think I always feel at the end of every fringe like that. That is that idea done, and then I sort of put the idea away in a box, and then I just assume the audiences must always feel the same. But of course, you spent the month with him, whereas we've only spent yeah, an hour. Yeah, with him. so people are going to go. I want to spend more hours with him, and then I go, "Oh, great! That's another another year of my life in a beard." There we go. I'm not putting any pressure. On. No, no, I don't have to. But um, but what fell out? Uh, just oh, just mic. a cable. Right, Second right, time right. that's happened to me. I don't know why it keeps happening to really? me. Really? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it must must be me. Classic Jos Norris yeah, thinking. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah taking The on, cable taking fell out of my yeah. mic for the second <laughs> probably, time. Probably my fault. The first time an probably unspecified my... location. <laughs> Jos's reaction, yeah, it'll be my fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I think You're so. right, I should stop. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, um, I think I formed a lot of uh, my sense of who I can be on stage from the characters I ended up being cast as in the Weirdos shows because there's sort of, across all the different Weirdos shows... Uh, people sort of had certain roles or types that they would always come back to. And I, partly just because of the way I behaved and the fact that I sort of invited bullying, uh, but I ended up being cast as the sort of victim of, of bullying. All my characters would always be, people would like shout at him and call him an idiot every time he, time he came on stage and boo him. And people just sort of treated them like rubbish. And then the audience always sort of found it quite endearing. And then by the end of the show were like, oh, we like him, he's great, give him a chance. Uh, and then the same thing happened when I started doing ACMS because I think of my recurring joke of like, oh no, it's not me. Uh, whenever I did ACMS, there's a, a, I think a running joke of uh, John Lee Roberts uh, hating me. I think it's, I think it's a gag. Um, <laughs> so I always ended up being sort of cast in these roles of like sort of uh, vict- earnest victims, sort of trying very hard, but always being sort of hit down by other people and being told, no, know your place and stay in your box or whatever. And I think realizing that that's, that was what made me naturally funny with other people was being put in that position. So that was the position I sort of had to put myself in with the audience. And I think initially when I started doing things, I tried to write from the point of view of like, I'm a stand-up telling you my story or I'm the person with all the answers or I've got this great skit or thing that I want to show you. And then gradually through playing all those characters, I realized actually I needed to be on the back foot somehow and I needed to be failing in some way and I needed to be getting things wrong because that's when that sort of earnestness or kindness or something comes out that makes me, I think, more silly or more funny um i don't know what i'll get from this character he's taught me to be much more physical and much more like there's a there's a lot of sort of uh, movement to it that i've tried to put into play with this idea that like he actually exists in a different way to me and he moves and thinks in a different way to me and i've tried to there's much more confidence to him i think like what he is is nonsense and rubbish but he he has this utter kind of like he wants to show you what he's made, uh, and I think really believes himself capable of doing it. So I think he might have given me more sort of command of the stage, or more, or certainly more ways of sort of physically expressing myself on stage. I think that's what I've got from him. I have to say one of my one of the things I love most about Mr. Fruit Salad. What a lovely sentence! <laughs> um, is is he seems so archetypal. Right. Because his his face is a disguise. Yeah. Like that already seems like, whoa, that's quite chilly. Yeah. And the fact that with the wonderful bit with the doors, yeah. he can walk off stage and appear on yeah. the other side of that the stage. Was the, that was the image that I really wanted. That was the, the center of the show for this year was the idea that I knew those, I performed the shows in that room for a couple of years and I know those tunnels exist. And I had that thought that because I'm performing in a disguise, 
I could just go out one tunnel and come out the other. So I knew I had to do it in that room, and I knew that the show was going to be built around this. Some, initially, it was just going to happen once. I was just going to stick my head in, and then my head was going to come out on the other side. But I've sort of realized while we were, doing, while we were kind of developing it that it needed to be more of a centerpiece than that. So that was very much the sort of... the the one thing I wanted the audience to see when I started making the show, really. It's just so lovely because it, it, it traps him in amber, yeah. doesn't it? It yeah. says, this guy only exists on stage. Yeah. He can't leave the room. Yeah, he's in this... I hadn't even thought about that. That's mate. really good. Doesn't matter. That's really Doesn't good. matter, mate. It's art. I was just thinking of, like, Roadrunner and stuff. I was like, I want him to be like Roadrunner. But, yeah. And when he's playing Scissors, Paper, Stone with himself yeah, and losing nice. to himself. Yeah, It's nice, yeah, man. Yeah, that's clever. It's actually clever, that bit. I just thought it was stupid, but it's clever. Wow. You can really discover stuff in your own work if you just listen to what people thought about it. You go, oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, I like that bit. Any further questions before we wrap up? Yes, this is for the benefit of the listener. We have a question now from one of the only two people in the room that doesn't know at all what's going on. Never seen it, never seen it. Go for it. Yeah, I think it's... I, I would imagine it's a more universal thing than, than you probably initially think. That like I, I don't think many people go around interacting with the world in a way where every kind of interaction they're faced with is one that they have absolute kind of confidence and certainty. And so I bet everybody has certain things of like this particular thing, whether it's the phone or whatever, actually is quite difficult. And I guess the, for me, the, the difficulty was sort of recognizing that and then thinking the solution to it was to get off the stage and to make things that existed in a completely different space. Uh, but then remembering it was the thing I loved, I think. Was, was what encouraged me to deal with it more and just to kind of accept that there will be ways of existing in the world that you find difficult, but as long as you're doing something you know you can do and believe in, then that's, that makes it worth it, if that makes sense. But I think, I think everybody has these things where certain ways of interacting are, are challenging or are difficult or they don't know how to get out of their own heads. I think probably there's a lot of that. But it is odd to... I don't know how many comedians have it. I think loads of them. I think the sheer act of putting yourself on stage is a way of acknowledging that you find it difficult interacting with the world because you're telling everybody, this is how I see the world and I need you all to know about it. And probably most people would be like, okay, I just, I just interact with the world. I don't need to tell everybody how I interact with the world. I just do it. Perhaps, or my pet theory would be that everyone has things like that. We just mm. don't get to hear about them because yeah. that, this gentleman's yeah. not on a stage. Yeah. So, so we're just the only ones who think we're interesting enough. Wrongly think we're the only people interesting enough to be like, yeah, listen to this. And everyone goes, yeah, I've got that. I just didn't choose to go yeah. there. <laughs> I just shut up about <laughs> it normally. Yeah. I just don't need people to know. <laughs> but we're the only people who go, yeah, people are going to want to hear about this. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, that is all we have time for. Thank you so much. Please uh, join me in thanking Mr. Jos Norris. Thank you very much. Thanks, everyone. (laughs) 
So that was Jaws. I thought we'd just run straight through that and let the whole thing play. Hope you enjoyed it. Thank you so much to Jaws uh, for coming along and being on the show. And congratulations again for winning the award voted on by other comedians, which is uh, a very lovely thing indeed. And thanks to everybody at the Monkey Barrel as well who helped me put that one on and who behaved so splendidly throughout the whole of the festival. Just such a lovely group of people. And um, particular shout-outs uh, from me to uh, Toronto Dave, uh, to Chris to Rob, uh, to everyone that um, stepped in and out of my show to do uh, front of house. Alfie, my tech, and Rudy, my uh, floor manager, let's call her. Um, and uh, uh, they were fantastic throughout. Alfie was up there teching for Spencer Jones's Disco Experiment, which was the penultimate show I saw in Edinburgh, and a lovely way to wrap things up. Um, I saw so many great things up there. Um, I tell you what, I'll finish thanking the, um, the, the podcast people first. Thanks to Jake Crossland uh, for logging. Podcast consultant is Peter Dobbing and Nathan Wood edited and produced this show. So with that all said, this is kind of by way of a postamble, really. Um, I am, as I mentioned, just uh, next to a door round a corner in Edinburgh Airport. And the first thing I should say is I feel terribly guilty. I mean, I'm flying to Spain, so it's not just a, a sort of a casual trip back to London or Bristol but um, uh, I saw Matt Winning's show it's the end of the world as we know it and uh, I saw that after my final show which was an incredibly quick way to deflate yourself after the enjoyment of finishing the run uh, he, Matt Winning is an excellent comedian has been for a long time but uh, I didn't realise for many years that he was genuinely a three degree holding uh, prof- oh, he's not a professor he's a doctor he's a doctor of climate change and a researcher into climate change uh, and his shows uh, over the last few years have been about uh, climate change uh, whether we have to change whether we're able to change and whether we're likely to change. And, uh, and this show was brilliant. I don't know if he's doing it in London or elsewhere anytime soon, but I'll try and find out for you because it was very funny, profoundly disturbing and probably the most important thing I saw. So it is with uh, apologies to not just Matt, but also my children's children that I take a flight to Spain. I'm really going to start trying to take some action to uh, set fire to our beautiful planet a little bit less than I currently do. But that said, what a festival. What a festival. This is as much of a debrief as I'll be able to do. And I suppose the fact it's in the corner of an airport is appropriate in some weird way. Uh, I've wedged my foot against the, uh, uh, the massively opening door in front of me just in case someone charges in and smacks me in the face with it. Thank you to uh, Jet and Becca from Chambers Management for looking after me throughout. Thanks to Hannah, of course, continually and, uh, and forever. Um, and, uh, and I mean, I don't just want to do a sort of a list of thanks. Loads of people came. Thank you if you came to the show. God, it was fun. God, it was so much fun. I think I've had my favourite ever festival. And in the manner of these things, you know I like to archetypalise things. Well, if that's a word... Um, I like to take the what's happened to me or what I think of someone else and kind of find some sort of mythic significance in it. And, and this year, the year where I didn't write anything at all until February and then tried to scrape... What was the phrase I used on the Leicester show guide? I, I said I'm trying to scrape creative efficiency back to the very marrow. Um, well, because of the process whereby I work up new stuff in the second half of my tour shows... I kind of, I'd done that about eight, nine, ten times by the time I got to Edinburgh. But other than that, I really hadn't done any sit-down writing. And the aim was to try and get to a place where I could properly work it out on stage. Um, I don't know if I managed to 
do that as much or as often throughout the whole run as I did on certain performances. But I, I feel like I've generated like an hour and 45's worth of stuff. Some really interesting things fell out of me that I didn't know I was thinking. And... Um, I just want to do it more. I want to do it more and, and differently and sort of make more explorations within it. Almost any, any of you, if I happen to bump into you during the festival, I will have said something similar to about how, what a relief and what a pleasure it was to exist completely outside the ecology of reviews and eligibility for anything. And it was just about the work. So whether this marks a big change in the way I work, because obviously... I had so much fun. People were coming out of the show going, we've been watching you for 10 years and that's your best thing ever. Some of my closest friends who've seen a lot of what I do were really excited by it. I was. Everyone just went nuts. The whole thing with the projector was so much fun to do and really felt like it served and changed the show rather than just being a sort of um, theatrical window dressing. So... It was just great. So I kept saying to people, you know, why should I ever finish? <laughs> What's the advantage in finishing anything? Why don't I just do work in progress for the rest of my life? Well, there we are, year 26 concluded, and um, it's just been one of my favourite ones ever. Some lovely moments. Thanks to Paul Foxcroft for finally having me on uh, Questing Time, which is his uh, uh, improv comedy slash Dungeons & Dragons kind of played with actual dice <laughs> show uh, which was loads and loads of fun I really enjoyed being on Werewolf Live which I wish I'd had the idea to do so thanks to John Gracie for that uh, what other things did I see oh my god I've got some great episodes in the can for you with some brilliant uh, brilliant people um, and people that I didn't manage to get to this time um, but I really enjoyed the work of uh, Darren Harriet. Uh, I really enjoyed Desiree Birch we had something in the diary but we'll, we'll have to try and uh, do a redo another time we both are a bit too frazzled by the time it came round Frank Foucault I really enjoyed proper commitment to absurdism that was that was a wonderful show um, Jordan Brooks who of course uh, won the comedy award and I was texting him about something very mundane whilst he was on stage because I was completely unaware that it was all going on but his show uh, I've Got Nothing was a masterpiece as was um uh, John Kearns' show, that was brilliant. Spencer Jones's disco experiment was phenomenal. I've not seen one of Pat Cahill's hours for years because we always seem to clash. But his, uh, his rap with Alfie on drums and Spencer on loops, um, his rap about uh, uh, not letting his dog, <laughs> not having his dog put down despite everything that was wrong with it, was an absolute highlight. Uh, Anthony Living Space, a fantastic street performer that I wrote my dissertation about 20 years ago and with whom I'm now very, very good friends. Um, his, I think, was the last show I saw in town and uh, he was doing some just, just breathtakingly precise and yet very messy and improvised play with the audience and, and his environment. Um, and what else? God, I mean, I had a two-day break in the middle of it to go and be a proper dad for two days. Um, so I, I sort of feel like there were two festivals and I can't remember as far back as the first one. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you who we've got coming up, and you know I don't mention this unless the episodes are safely in the can. Not only from Montreal do we have an exclusive as Heath McIver, who is the man behind and indeed underneath Randy the Puppet, um, finally appears as himself. I've been working on it for years, and uh, we've got a brilliant, brilliant episode about, uh, all about that and why he's 
why he never does interviews as himself. That's coming soon. Matt Besser, a brilliant improviser and the co-founder of Upright Citizens Brigade. And also Chris Fleming, who if you haven't already looked for him on YouTube, please do, because he's, he's a prodigious talent. Those are all the ones from Montreal. And then coming up from this festival, still to be released, we have Sarah Barron, fantastic American comic with deep roots in storytelling and the, the craft of... Uh, uh, structuring a story very very funny presence we've got a brilliant physical comedy double act the cagouls uh, we also have Zach Vigo and Johnny Woolley and their uh, enormous energy and creativity and fun we've got a really good conversation with poet comedian and deep thinker Rob Orton uh, the fabulous Jim Owen. Uh, I finally managed to track him down and get him on the podcast, and that's a, a lovely conversation that we had, after which I discovered that it hadn't recorded, but fortunately I'd taken a backup because I'm a goddamn professional. Who else? I'm sure there are other people as well, um, but uh, their names escape me for the moment. I can't wait to bring you all those episodes. We've got content for months now. Um, so that will do me for now. And just before I go off and uh, drink something alcoholic while staring out the window and playing Polytopia with my dear friend Wateracre... Uh, I w- can't recommend that game enough. Now that the festival's over, you give, get, you've got a solid month of Polytopia. Download that on your phone. That's my big tip. Um, and finally, and finally then, just a huge amount of thanks to my family and uh, as much as uh, Boutros and Future Girl helped with moral support throughout, I just want to thank my wife for being so resilient and so generous and so kind and giving me the support and the platform to come up here and have a brilliant time and walk away inspired and creative and having created and happy. And uh, thanks, mate. That's all from me. I will speak to you. I will try and sneak out another episode when I'm on holiday, but if there's nothing next week, I apologise. There are plenty to come, and when I'm back in the real world, I'll get cracking. Thanks, everybody that came to the show. Thanks for listening, and that'll do for now. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.